again? discipleship in our Christian lives. And if anyone knows me more personally, they'll know that I'm not a huge sports fan. I know enough about sports to have casual conversations about, hey, how's the team doing? Oh, they're doing great. And we can talk about that. But if we start getting into the details about um, players' names and statistics and all those kind of things, I'm going to get kind of glossy-eyed, and I'll change the subject to coffee right away. Uh, except if we're going to talk about the Chicago Bulls during the Jordan era and the 1985 Chicago Bears. Then we can have conversation. Otherwise, my conversation about sports is going to be limited to two unique sports. The first is MMA. There is not an MMA match or event that I am not absolutely thrilled to watch and talk about. And the second is hockey, because a little known fact, sometimes you can go to a hockey game and watch a boxing match at the same time. It just happens. Those are the funnest of all hockey games. Um, but, and that, that kind of moves us into this morning's message, because we're looking at fighting. And fighting does not always mean, you know, fist and fist or elbow, knee and kick. It doesn't always mean that. It can mean that energized endurance to finish with great resolve. And Paul talks to Timothy like this in 1 Timothy chapter 6 in verse 12, which reads, Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you, were ma when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. in order 
for? 10,000 hours. 10,000. That's commitment. That's dedication. That's effort. And anyone that has played either high school sports or college sports, maybe even professional sports in some fashion, realize right away that the difference between one individual that's an amateur and a professional is not always strength. It's not always knowledge. But it's determined practice. It is that routine of practice that makes the difference. Yes, there's natural talent. There's natural giftedness. There's some of those things. And physical ability, that's huge. But it all boils down to when one person is second place and one is first place in a match, it's usually because that first place has practiced more. Usually. This Christian life, Paul conveys to Timothy his life of practice. That tells me it's important. That tells me that it is vital and that it is someone else with words. 
to fight with someone else for attention. This is more than using words and gathering attention. It's about putting ourselves on the front line of the battle for the truth. Now, the first thing with fighting in general is you have to know who your opponent is. You have to know who you are fighting because that will dictate how you train. If you're fighting a southpaw, you're going to fight and train a lot differently than if you fight, fight someone who's an orthodox boxer. It's just you have to know. You have to know who the speed person is, who the strong person is on that team, and compensate with your team for that. And so you have to put a game plan together. So it is vitally important to know, first of all, whom you are fighting. And Paul explains that in Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 12. And in Ephesians 6, verse 12, Paul says, For our struggle, that is our fight, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. And then he goes on to talk about the whole armor of God, which is a beautiful illustration of how to make ourselves ready for the battle, for the fight, for the fight of your attention, for the fight of your soul, for the fight of your spiritual well-being, for the fight of your discipleship, for the fight of heaven and earth. And Paul says, the first thing you need to know is your enemy. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not the things we see. It's not really the people we encounter. Those things may be aggressive towards Christianity. It may be destructive towards Christianity. But that's not our primary enemy. The person who's on TV speaking about atheism and promoting an evolutionary worldview about how man was created, no different than an ape, that's not our main enemy. There is something underlining that culture of hatred for God and a disbelief in God that is more than just those words. It's spiritual. And he goes on to tell us there, these spiritual things are the rulers, the authorities, the powers of this dark world, first and foremost. So it's those, those things that have gained notoriety, a sense of importance, a sense of strength in this world that we have to be wary of. Whether that sometimes science pits itself up against God, definitely culture and movies and music pits itself against God, and just casual conversations in the, in the school or at work or even in the neighborhood that pits themselves against God. We are inundated with people whose purpose it is to make Christianity look foolish to make it look like a crutch, and to make it look inept at solving life's problems, always ready to be critical. And Paul says, it is also against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. Our competition in this fight for the faith is spiritual, first and foremost. It is indeed a fight against the devil. It is a fight against Satan and all of his dominions and all of his influences, all of his powers. 
It is subtle. It is not always in your face. Sometimes it's in a small thought that just grabs hold in your mind, and you race with it, and before you know it, you are in a place where you are vulnerable. Vulnerable to a spiritual attack that leads you to despair. This does not mean the devil is behind everything we face that's hard and rough and challenging. Sometimes the hard and rough and challenging things are of our own doing. We've lived that way and so we reap the consequences of bad action, whatever it might be. But generally, and the church specifically, we fight primarily against the evil forces. Satan is a masterful deceiver and liar. A liar, flat out. He's not innocent, he's not misunderstood, he's dangerous. So dangerous that Paul says, this Everything you can imagine that goes along with fighting attaches to this struggle that we have against our greatest enemy. Now he is defeated in Christ, but he is still very alive, roaming the world, as Paul says, like a lion ready to strike. The second thing is that we fight this fight to the faith really through obedience to Jesus. Where do I practice? Where do I gain my skills? Where do I go to find how to prepare myself? Because if you go into a fight with no preparation, if you go into a game with no preparation, no study of the enemy, no practice, no exercise, no drills, if you go into that, unless you are fighting someone who is two years old, you're going to lose if they're prepared. Well, our enemy is prepared because our enemy has been around longer than you have. Our enemy has seen into our hearts and our minds, not all-knowing, he's limited, definitely limited, but he is certainly more powerful and more wise and more subtle and more cunning than we think we are. He's good at making people slip and fall and deny the faith. Take Peter, for an example. The man walked with Jesus for three years, right? lived and slept and ate with him, saw his miracles time and time again, saw more miracles than what's recorded here, and yet Peter, Paul, uh, Jesus prayed for him that the devil wouldn't take his attention. And yet Peter falters. How subtle really is. How fast the downfall can be. You have to be prepared, and that way of preparation is something as simple and as Jesus more than one time says, if you love me, you'll do what? Keep my commandments. Religion is not just a feeling thing. There's action involved. There's responsibility involved. There's obedience involved. But if you love him, we're going to be obedient. And in our obedience, our obedience protects us. The law protects us. It's not there to hurt us. It's not there to stifle us. It's not there to stop us from having fun. It isn't. It is there to provide a set of standards that keeps us safe. It's a playbook of rules. And if you play a game with no rules, it's chaotic. But the rules are there so the game is played fairly. And so God gives us his law 
so that we would be able to play fairly in this life that we live, in this fight that we have for the faith, that we would know what's expected of us, what's out of bounds and what's in bounds, what's fair and what's not fair, how to score, how to defend. It teaches us how to be loving God and loving others. We start with those two commandments, and you get those two commandments down, and I guarantee you the rest of them will come easy. It's all summarized in those two. He continues and tells us thirdly that this fight for the truth, this fight for God's standard of righteousness, also entails an idea of an uncompromised living. When someone is in training and has had an opportunity to go up to uh, the Olympic Training Center in Springs, has anyone ever been there? It, it, it's fascinating. It's free. It's fascinating. Um, and it is amazing how detailed everything is about their training. From the time they go to bed to the time they get up to the oxygen levels in the rooms to the food they eat to the clothing they wear. I mean, it is so much more complicated to run 100 meters than I thought it was. I thought you just stand there and run and go. Um, that tells you about all the training I've had as a runner. Uh, but it is intense training. Every muscle, they train their emotions and spiritually. They talk about the whole person, not just how fast they can run, but their mentality in their running. And they live in an uncompromising way. They don't let anything distract them. There's a lot of distractions in our lives. What time of the day do distractions start to reach us? As soon as you wake up, right? Who else checks their phone while they're still in uh, <coughs> bed? Because you might have missed the most important email you've ever seen. Yeah. Or the latest news, like the news can't wait 10 more minutes. My life is not going to change if I ignore the news for 10 minutes. Fight the good faith, that fight. We have to have an uncompromising life, which means those distractions have to be minimal because our target goal is to love God and to love others. Anything that gets in the way of that is a distraction. Anything that gets in the way of that primary focus is going to cause hindrance in our training to be fighters for God. Fourth, this fight, I think, calls us to live as Jesus lived, to serve as he served, to love as he loved. There is, there used to be, and this is probably in the 90s, and I don't think it's much of a popular opinion anymore, uh, this WWJD, everybody ever heard that, What Would Jesus Do? Uh, that was real popular back in the 90s until there was kind of a, an evaluation of that, kind of a, a Christianized, Christianese, kind of thought, you see, we can't do what Jesus did, okay? We really can't. Uh, I can't raise anyone from the dead, right? I, I can't feed the 5,000 with just a couple loaves and fish. I can't walk on water. I can't do what he did. I can't sacrifice myself for the sins of the world. What I can do and what he's asked us to do is to do what he told us to do, 
totally different. It's not what would Jesus do, it is what did Jesus tell us to do. And he didn't tell us to raise the dead. He didn't tell us to heal everyone that we came into contact with. He told us to love and be compassionate towards everyone. To be truthful to everyone. To walk the extra mile. To turn the other cheek. To give of ourselves at our own detriment. To let others have before we have. To give and not to take. And to forgive and not hold grudges. So in order to fight this fight, in order to get practice in the things of the Christian discipline, to make the faith, the truth of God's word, stand in our lives and reflect to the world around us, we must, must love and serve the way Jesus did. If we're loving like he did and serving like he did, we are then practicing obedience. We are practicing the values that Jesus says, this is vital to the kingdom of God. This is how you resist the devil. This is how you fight the good fight of the faith. Fifth, we've talked about this a little bit, priorities. But our priority must be what Jesus lays out in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. And in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33, Jesus says, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Now, when he's talking in that context, he's talking about, uh, well, in fact, let me just read that. Uh, He says, can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to his life? The answer is no. Then why do you worry about clothes? You see the flowers of the field, how they grow? They don't labor and spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If it is how God clothes the grass of the fields, which is here today and tomorrow thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. I love the honesty of Jesus. Jesus says, in the Christian life, it is not a health and wealth gospel where everything is great. Just become a believer and your whole life will be changed. It will be amazing. No, your whole life will be changed, and there will be parts that still are rough and hard and heartbreaking and painful. And you may not be rich. You may not have every luxury, but you're loved by God. And if God can take care of the fields and the animals and the birds, and they make it from day to day, certainly you are of much more value, and God can take care of you. All right. So if I'm not supposed to worry about the clothing and food and shelter, I just am responsible and I live and I I work and I maintain what God has given me, okay, then what should I focus on? I think if you ask a lot of people what's your focus, they're going to say it's money, it's stuff, it's a better job, better education. Some might even be bold to be honest and say, I want a better family. Okay? 
And I'm not asking you guys, I'm just the public. You know, the people way out there somewhere, like in Los Angeles or something like that. Not us. We love our family. Uh, we do, honestly. Um, so if I'm not going to spend all my energy on stuff and, and acquiring stuff and worrying about what I really – oh, I, for whatever reason, YouTube gave me this video to watch on a billionaire's lifestyle. And uh, being that I've never been a billionaire, I have no idea what their lifestyle is like. Uh, and, and it wasn't um, it wasn't their lifestyle as, all, as far as all their toys and all their homes and stuff like that. It was um, conversations with these billionaires, kind of one on one on what what their life is like, not their stuff, but their life, their their life. And it was amazing. Because every one of the billionaires that they interviewed had the same exact fear. You know what their most pressing fear was? What if I lose all my money? You know, God's blessed me without having the fear of losing money. You know how he's done that? Because he's given me money. Maybe some of you are in that same boat. Amen. But I thought to myself, here's, and it was one after the other after says there's a whole nother attitude the believer has. And that attitude is not on the worry about stuff, but on the kingdom of God. Living for him with every fiber of our being. Fighting it and not giving up. Back in 1 Timothy chapter uh, 1 verse, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, he not only says, Fight the good fight of the faith. And we've seen a couple ways in which we can fight that faith. But he also says, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you were made, when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. I thought eternal life was one of those things just given to you, you know, you raise your hand, you walk down the aisle, you say the sinner's prayer, you give your heart to Jesus, you're born again, you're saved, you're regenerated, whatever word you want to use, but now you love Jesus and Jesus has forgiven you. I thought eternal life was just yours. How do you lay hold of a future promise? The future promise is eternal life, heaven, is how we would describe it. But scripture makes a very big difference between heaven and eternal life. Heaven is a destination, a place of our final abode. That's, that's our resting place, heaven. And then God has said, in the end, I'm wiping heaven and earth out and making a brand new one for my people. That's awesome. So heaven is a place where God dwells and the Son is seated at the right hand. Jesus is reigning and ruling as Lord of Lord and King of Kings. And he is the mighty Savior sitting on that throne. by Jesus himself in John chapter 17. John chapter 17 is an unbelievable 
chapter. I mean, it, it's, it's probably one of my favorite chapters in all of Scripture because it is indeed and truly the Lord's Prayer. Not the prayer we recite, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, but it is really the prayer that Jesus himself prayed. And you get insight into his, his heart. You get insight into his passion. You get insight into his hope for us. He prays for you and I in that prayer in John 17. But one of the things he says at the beginning of his prayer, in the first, four, uh, first five verses, he says this, Father, the hour has come glorify your son. This is right before the cross. This is the Passion Week. So he says, Father, the hour has come. He knows that the cross is right, right next door to him. Glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. Okay, so he's saying, hey, I, I, as, as, as I do and accomplish things, all of this is done and accomplished for you. It's not for me, it's for you. He says, for you have granted him authority over all people that he might have Give eternal life to all that you have given him. So he talks about that the Father has bestowed upon Jesus the ability to give eternal life to people. Okay? And then he defines it in verse 3 of John 17. What is eternal life? He says this. Now this, oh yeah, this, this is eternal life. Okay, so we get a definition from Jesus. This is eternal life. And notice he doesn't say heaven. This is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Let me read that again. Now this is eternal life. That they know you, and the only, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Notice the emphasis there in that verse. This is eternal life. Eternal life is about knowing God. Eternal life is knowing Him and knowing Jesus. Not just facts. The word here, epigenoso, means a deep, intimate, personal knowledge. It's relational. It's not, I have a fact about God, I have a fact about Jesus. It's not facts. It's a personal relationship. Jesus says that's what's eternal life. It's a personal relationship with God and Jesus. Much different than the destination of heaven. So when Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, verse 12, fight the good fight of the faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, Paul could have said, take hold of the relationship you have with God and Jesus. Take hold of that relationship. Take hold of that personal connection you have. Take hold of that knowledge you have of him. And that life that's expressed through it, which you made good confession in the presence of many witnesses. How do we take hold of a relationship? How does someone that you have a relationship with know that you care about? Really, that it's an important relationship. That's the struggle, then, isn't it? Kind of show your wives how important they are to us all the time. That's a struggle as parents to children. How do we show them all the time that they are loved and protected? How do we share with our friends that as a friendship we value it? How do we share with God and tell him 
that I'm laying hold of this relationship that it is worth fighting over. That's what Paul and Christ say. He says, take hold of the eternal life. Take hold of the relationship you have with God. The relationship that we know is true because in front of a whole bunch of people, they've witnessed your relationship to Christ. What do you do with that? Show him that your relationship with him matters. In part, you're doing a very simple step today. You're gathering together, as we're told in Hebrews, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. We are singing together. We are praying together. We have given gifts and tithes to God. We're listening to his word. We're thinking in our minds, what are the distractions that I'm facing? We're thinking in our minds, how dedicated am I to this life? We're thinking in our minds, wow, I never knew there was a difference between heaven and eternal life. I always thought eternal life was I lived early. No, it's about a relationship with God. How do I fight and, 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 and resist worry? Oh, well, that's an easy one. I just focus on God's kingdom and assure myself that God knows how to take care of me if he can take care of the grass, the flowers, and the animals. A relationship with God, showing him that it's important, is doing what you're already doing today. But not just for an hour. For the other 167 hours you're given every week. Not, oh, please don't want to be in church for 167 hours. That's not what God has asked us to do. That would be really uncomfortable. Really challenging. But we can lay hold of the faith, live in an uncompromising way according to God's word, and not let failures get in the way of our trust. There is a video that I want to show, and it's a minute or two long. It's uh, Heather Dorzen in 2008. I do not expect that name to mean a thing to you. You may have saw, seen this video a long time ago, uh, but it is a video. Well, I'll just let the video speak for itself, and then we'll close.
just the fact that you burned was pretty impressive to me. But secondly, falling down, how many people at that moment would just simply give up? I failed. But someone who has trained, someone who has a single focus in mind, I need to run the race. I need to run the race. I need to fight the fight for faith. Does not look at a stumble as a failure in the end. And she says in an interview later on, and some of that is quoted there, she didn't think about having to win. She just knew, I have to win. I have to win. God has put in our lives a fight. A fight of monumental proportions. Heaven and earth lie in the balance. Souls lie in the balance. And even if we have stumbled and fallen along the way, it doesn't give us any right simply give up. We should be like Timothy and take the words of Paul to heart and fight a good fight for the faith and to lay hold of that relationship with Jesus Christ as more valuable than anything else. And if we approach the Christian life like that, God one day will tell us, feels at times we put in a lot of effort and we don't see a lot of results in our spiritual life. We admit, Lord, that sometimes we are attached to the emotion of something. Lord, help us be mindful that our relationship with you is tremendously personal. Help us share that with others. Help us live and comfort others with the love and service Jesus has inspired us to do. And help us, Father, to fight the good fight for the faith and to lay hold of that relationship with you and make it meaningful today, tomorrow, the rest of this week. In Jesus' name, all of God's people said, Amen.